because I knew that it was taboo. And I knew that there were people out there who, like me, had either had curiosities, were interested, or maybe were even doing it, but were ashamed, hiding it. And I was right, because as soon as I started talking about it, you know, I received the same feedback, like I did all those years ago about motherhood. Oh my God, thank you so much. My husband and I have been happily married for 20 years, and we've been regularly going to swinger parties. It's fantastic, we love it. Like we couldn't be closer. None of our friends know, oh my God, they wouldn't be our friends. And then I heard other people say, we told our friends, they're not our friends anymore. Like crazy stories, you know, all kinds of stories. And then I also had the other side of it, which I loved as well, when people say, yeah, don't see this as a big deal at all. Like no confession here, but like I'm, I'm gonna, I'm still writing in because I, I know that it's still important. Welcome to How To Be Sad, the podcast about how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better. The paperback edition of How To Be Sad, The Key To Happiness is out now if you'd like to find out more. And in the meantime, join me each week as a very special guest shares their own story of how to be sad well. Tova Lee is a writer and performer with a global community of 1.6 million fans worldwide. Born in Israel, where she practiced as a lawyer, Tova moved to the UK to study acting before becoming a household name with her hilarious and honest takes on parenthood, marriage, body confidence and sex. Through her Amazon Prime documentary Mum Life Crisis, best-selling books and podcast, she speaks with frankness and vulnerability about the pressures of modern life, as well as the crisis that many of us will face and the normal sadness of just being human. So Tova Lee, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I loved both of your books, and I think many of your experiences will resonate with listeners. So I would love to begin by asking about the crisis. Can you tell us about that? Yes, the crisis. <laughs> I call it, it was, a, I suppose it was um, a type of a midlife crisis, but I called it a mom life crisis because I believe it was very much connected to motherhood. And it happened when I was 42, after having a bit of a health scare, uh, a little something that I found on my, you know, left breast led me to go down the mammogram kind of rabbit hole and have a few months of sort of anxiety, not quite sure, you know, what was going on and if there was something serious there. And I was very lucky. It ended up being nothing and everything was fine. But I think it's what kick-started my crisis that was obviously a long time coming <laughs> and I didn't even realize because I was so in the fog of motherhood. Before then, I became a mom first time when I was 35 and then we had twins literally two years later. So we had three children within two years. That's a lot. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I usually say at this point, the end. Because... <laughs> I feel like it says it all. And, you know, it was obviously a, a big blessing and we wanted children and it wasn't like an easy process to get children. So obviously we were very grateful. Uh, but at the same time, I just completely disappeared, you know, and I think this is something that probably happens to a lot of women. I just slowly faded away and completely disappeared to the point where when the crisis started, I honestly just didn't know who I was anymore, like who I was. My identity was so wrapped up in being a mom and there was nothing from the previous me just left. When I had that health scare, 
I don't know, something inside me just clicked. I just, I had like a, a lot of emotions happening at the same time, fear, uncertainty, like, uh, you know, all those things. But the next completely clear thought that I had was I have to book a bungee jump. Obviously. Which, com- <laughs> obviously, which is exactly what you think of when someone tells you they found something suspicious in your press. Uh, but for me, what it meant was this kind of uh, impulse to just, live my life, like just go out, live my life to the absolute fullest, because actually we're all here just for a certain amount of time. And even though we all know that we are um, mortal and that the day will come, you know, I think just not knowing when it's coming makes you feel like, oh, there's plenty of time, there's plenty of time. And it was like that moment of going, actually, I don't know how much time there is. What am I waiting for? And uh, I decided to make a bucket list of things that I always wanted to do or things that I used to do when I was younger and sort of stopped doing because moms don't do that, you know, <laughs> and just some really crazy things. And I just made this list. And for about a year, I went out and just did them, all of the things from bungee jumping to a nude photo shoot, to taking my friends out to Ibiza, to going even all the way to Nepal to do the Everest best base camp trek with my brother, which I've always wanted to do. I went there when I was in my 20s and I've always wanted to go back there and never thought I'd get a chance. And even writing a book was on that list and doing a one woman show. <laughs> so like originally facing a lot of my fears, but also living a lot of my dreams in a very short space of time. <laughs> How did that feel, the, the facing of the fears part? What did that do for you being able to conquer those? I, I think that the fear was the process with how you deal with fear is a massive, massive part of, of my journey, actually. Because a lot of times I think people look at uh, when other people do things and they think, God, how were they not scared? Like, how were they not scared to do that? And I think what might surprise people is that they were scared. <laughs> I don't think you can eliminate fear. Like I think fear is there for a reason. And in many cases, it protects us actually. And sometimes we need to listen to the fear, but there's also a lot of, uh, they're not real fears, you know, they're not real fears. And then that's the point where you have to do it despite the fear. So I was petrified is, is the answer. I was petrified <laughs> and before, nearly before every single thing I did. Uh, and I questioned myself, why am I doing these things. And I think Nepal is the best example because that was a really big thing for me, you know, to fly all the way to the other side of the world and to go for three weeks. And I have a deep fear of flying. I am not a good flyer. Uh, so these were long flights, including very scary flights. You know, we had to go to what is considered the most dangerous airport in the world. <laughs> Uh, so even for someone who doesn't is not afraid of flights like that would have been scary and someone told me before I went out they my my community is amazing and they were so supportive and so behind it and they would send me advice and send me like really inspiring videos to watch and I watched the Will Smith video you know where he jumps when he does like the skydive and he says in that video he says someone once told me that the best things in life are beyond fear and that stayed with me so much oh he's good we should all get t-shirts with will smith quotes that's good right <laughs> exactly and that i don't know that really helped me someone else told me focus on one step at a time like don't look 10 steps ahead just where your foot's gonna land like the next step 
Uh, and I actually adopted that like since then. It's something that I tell myself all the time because I feel like if I really did focus on step uh, 10 steps ahead, I wouldn't move, <laughs> which is <laughs> you know? So that helps me cope with fear. But I 100% am scared of a lot of things, but I do them anyway. That's great. And so this is a podcast about how to be sad because from my research, it seems like actually many of us have a phobia of sadness. You are a very upbeat person, clearly. And I am also quite sort of yellow and, and Pollyanna-ish in, in many respects. But actually, if we are able to embrace our sadness as well, we can get happier and live more fulfilled lives. And I was interested, I'd love to dig a bit more when you were talking about your things leading up to the crisis, the impact of the shock of parenthood after infertility is something I also went through. And it's a, you know, you, you felt, I noticed, compelled to say we were very grateful and we felt blessed because there is that that sort of guilt, isn't there, of feeling like I shouldn't really complain about everything because this is what I wanted. Uh, how did you cope with that? How did you experience that? Yeah, I think um, there is that impulse to apologize. And even within the crisis, I felt, you know, very privileged. You know, my problems compared to a lot of other people are very privileged problems. And I'm so aware of that. But it doesn't take away, you know, the genuine personal experience that you have in your life. And also, I think there's a lot of people who probably can relate to your problems, which is why it's important to, I think, vocalize them. But also, I, I suppose, acknowledge the fact that you understand that compared to other people, your problems may seem smaller. With the fertility, we, I mean, you know, I feel like, again, we were lucky because we, it could have been so much so such a longer process for us. And for many people, it is a longer and more difficult and challenging process. I was 30, I suppose, 33, 34. And we were trying to get pregnant really quite quick after we got married, to be honest, because Mike's eight years older than me, and we were both ready. And it just didn't happen. And I had this feeling, you know, I just had this gut feeling that we should probably go and check it out, like, and not wait too long. So we did. And the first doctor we went to was just so gloom and doom. He was, it was like a shock. He just basically turned around to us and quite frankly, very insensitive. They said, you're never going to have children, actually. Uh, there's a good chance you're never going to have children. Like, it was just so shocking. I'll never forget it. Friday afternoon, sun's out. We came out of the clinic and I just felt numb. And you know how... You never know you want something until someone says you actually might not have it. Because I was never that type of person who was, I really want kids. I, I wasn't overly maternal. You know, babies didn't do it for me. Do you know what I mean? I, it, it wasn't my reality. And the moment he said that, I just felt like I felt sick. And immediately you think about all the things that you have done wrong, you know, Oh God, I smoked in my twenties and why did I party hard? And I did this and it's my fault and all of that. And then we, I think, oh, you know, you talk about sadness. I feel like one of the main, for me at least, or maybe for other people as well, is talking about things when you, I, I hold things, you know, and it's actually whenever I put them out there, it's so helpful because it, it just makes it all so better. And we decided to actually talk to uh, some friends, close friends that we knew went through some fertility treatment because there was a sh there was shame. I don't know why. It's so ridiculous. It's like, why, why, why would we be ashamed? But there was a bit of shame there. We didn't know who to speak to. And, and they were so lovely. They just said, okay, calm down. You need to get another opinion. 
there's difference, you know, there's difference attitude towards this, like go get a second opinion. And they referred us to the same people that helped them. And their attitude was just so different. It was like from the moment we came into the clinic, it was positive. Like, don't worry, we've got you. We're going to explore all options. Oh, don't even worry. Like it was so, it just put us at ease. And then we went down the route of like seeing what the issue actually was. And they felt confident that we could try uh, a procedure called IUI. So it's not IVF. It was something else and it was less invasive and it was like a, a, a first a starting point. And we did that. And second cycle, I got pregnant. Our process of, you know, our kind of the infertility kind of those months, I think, again, looking back, we were so lucky. It could have, it could have been something totally different. And then with the twins, the second time around we, we had twins, we went down the same route because it worked for us first time. So it took a little longer second time. Mm -hmm. I think it took three cycles, but uh, yeah, third time lucky. And then, of course, much joy of having small children, but also a lot of work. And you have written and spoken very movingly about the pressures and, and the things that parents go through. And so I know that that's something you started to share more online. I wonder what it felt like to get that response to to find that you weren't alone and that lots of people appreciated your vulnerability there to be honest that was shocking i honestly hadn't expected it at all when i started the blog it was end of 2015 it was actually boxing day and it was out of sheer desperation <laughs> and completely in the moment it was not planned it was not prepared i was just having a day where i I just needed to sit down and write. I've always loved writing. It's a way for me to express, you know, and, and to express myself. So I, you know, I, I basically threw my husband out of the house with the kids and said, you have to go like for an hour because I'm about to lose my mind. And, and I just sat there with my computer and just typed, you know, just vented everything. And then I felt like I want to put it out there. You know, I don't want to just vent to myself. I actually want to voice it. I don't care anymore. I don't care what people think. I just want to put it out there. And I didn't have a blog. I didn't have anything at the time. And I quickly Googled, how do you start a blog and found WordPress? And I had to come up with a name. So I thought, okay, my thoughts about stuff, <laughs> which is still the name of my blog. Does what it says on the tin. Literally, yeah. my thought about stuff, which, you know, in retrospect, I'm very glad about because I can talk about whatever I want. It's not restricted to one thing. And that was it. And I just hit share. And in the evening, hours later, completely forgot all about it. Like wasn't checking or anything. I came back to my computer to check and I was blown away by the response. There were so many women, uh, some friends who knew me, some people who didn't. People were sharing it on groups and stuff. And the feedback was just, you know, it was, it was amazing. Uh, so many women saying, I can't believe it. You've literally described what I feel. And I didn't know that I was allowed to say this. I didn't know that it was okay for me to feel this way. Like I, I look at my friends and it doesn't look like that's what they're feeling. You know, their lives just don't look like me. I don't know. I, I thought something was wrong with me. And then was, I think that was the first time that I a felt normal, <laughs> uh, normal in, in, in my motherhood, but also that, wow, maybe I'm onto something here. Maybe this is something that there isn't enough of out there and I should explore it more. So I started writing on a regular basis after that. And I feel we're getting a little better now at, at trying to be honest and, and doing away with these ideas of sort of perfect domestic bliss. But I know that you faced a bit of a pushback when you started to 
talk about things beyond parenting, when you start to sort of move into activism. Can you tell me about that and, and sort of talking about body confidence and uh, yeah, how, how your sort of stirrings began in that direction? Well, actually, the pushback started even at the point where I was still just talking about parenting because, you know, <laughs> you literally yeah. cannot win. Oh, no, you can. <laughs> but but that's OK, you know, because there's, there's billions of people in the world and not everybody's going to have the same opinion. And, you know, I sort of chose to go down the route of comedy as well. And with the parenting videos, I sort of, uh, you know, you take a situation that in the moment was awful <laughs> and not fun at all. But you spin it in a funny way because actually laughter, I think, gives people a lot of relief. And it certainly gave me a lot of relief to be able to laugh about things, but only aftermath, by the way, never in that moment and never in the moment. But yeah, people had a lot to say about me as a parent. They had a lot to say about my kids. And it was very, very hard, actually, at the beginning to navigate that. I don't really care what they say about me, but it was hard to read stuff about, I suppose, my motherhood me as a mom, because, you know, my kids are, there's nothing in this world that I love more than my children. And it's such a, you know, it's such a vulnerable place. Like when people question your, if you're a good mother, it hurts. Like it really did hurt me. So that I think was probably the hardest thing to navigate. I don't really care so much when they talk about the activism stuff, because I know that there are people in the world who have different opinions. And I just want to shed light on topics that I'm passionate about. So the, the blog evolved from parenting into a lot of women stuff, you know, talking about aging, talking about, um, you know, body image, talking about women's sexuality, and then into women's rights, which really, I think, is probably at the heart of everything that I do. The, the three, you know, three people who inspire me the most are my three daughters, because, you know, there's one thing I, I hope that I, you know, help is just shape a better future for them. Uh, and that's how I choose the topics that I talk about most of the time. And you know what it's like when your kids grow up a little bit more. There is that sweet spot when they're not so annoying. <laughs> and so I feel like I'm at that point right now. I don't really have much to say and do videos about like because they're actually lovely. And soon there'll be preteens and teenagers and I'm sure I'll have loads of new content. But at the moment, at the moment, we're at the sweet spot where actually they're, they're great. They're great people. And, you know, and, and, and that's going well. So like, there's other things that I'm talking about at the moment. And how do you feel as your kids grow up? I heard you say recently that they can wipe their own butts now. And this felt like a sort of a big line in the sand. And I'm very happy for you. And I'm looking forward to reaching that place. But um, how do you feel now about your kids growing up and social media and mental health? Yeah, my kids are not on social media. And if it is up to me, they probably won't be ever. <laughs> uh, we we don't have devices at home, which I know probably sounds a bit odd for people because I'm on, you know, I'm, I'm on social media. But I think being on social media has made me more, much more aware of how awful it is and how dangerous it can be for children. And even for adults, you know, it's, you know, whether it's the addictive side of it, to the bullying side of it, to just how the misleading information that's on it, like there's so many aspects of social media that are just a bit dangerous. I have these conversations with my kids all the time. They know exactly how I feel. You know, my daughter is 10. A lot of her friends have phones and tablets and she constantly asks me for one and I constantly say no. And that's the end of that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Is there an age you think you might have to 
I don't know, wave on that? Yes. I mean, I think when she starts secondary school and if she does, tra- like, does soul travel, then we'll consider uh, giving her a phone, but it will probably be old school phone. Like <laughs> like a big 1980s car phone. Yes. Amazing. No apps, <laughs> not a smartphone, just we can ring you and we'll know where you are and that's about it. I mean, just a walkie-talkie. What more do they need, really? Exactly. Be fine. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my poor kids. They're like, you know, my kids play with old school games, which I love. You know, they're into like Beano, comic books, Lego. I love that. That's so nice. But there's plenty of time there's for the other stuff. Time. I think, yeah. yeah, it's all good. And it strikes me that you have, you know, you've really, from reading your books and reading your your journey, to, that you have really found your path now. And you talked about you, your community, and I know it took you a while to find that. How, how does it feel to have that sense of belonging? Do you have advice for any listeners who are perhaps struggling with that? That's so funny, because that's not how I feel at all. <laughs> oh, tell me. Yeah, no, I don't. I, I Yeah, I, I struggle with that, actually. Uh, I feel like uh, the community that I've built is probably, I mean, it really is amazing you know and i'm so grateful i'm grateful that they're there because it's not an obvious thing for them to be there and to root for you and to be so engaged and to actually care because sometimes i feel oh is anybody even out there like is there any point in any of this because it's virtual you know it's so bizarre and it's weird because the universe usually sends me little reminders when I need them the most. So I'll suddenly run into someone in the street and they'll go, oh, my God, you know, this post you did helped me. And you go, wow, like that's a real person. You know, it's a real person in, in the world. But I don't know because none of it was planned. I, I feel like I don't really know where I'm going with it. Do you know what I mean? Like I don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, oh, I've done this and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. But I don't actually know where I'm going. And that takes away from the sense of belonging because it feels, do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. And I, I'm, I feel sort of sorry about that, but I don't know if that's the right thing. <laughs> I sort of, I think as a fellow freelancer, there is always a hope that someone else feels settled and that if you just do a certain amount <laughs> in your freelance world, that things will feel settled, but no. Oh, I'm so <laughs> sorry. <laughs> not. I'm so no, sorry. Right. I'll let you I'll let you off. I'm curious to know what impact your legal training and acting training, I mean, that is, is a, this is a hot combination, has had on, I guess, maybe your work ethic, but also the content you produce. I mean, I can see the kind of the acting training coming in there, but I wonder, does the legal brain, analytical brain come in there as well? I think so. You know, I, I invested so many years in, in that degree and in getting, you know, getting all that done uh, I mean all in all altogether it was over seven years you know from uh, school to the internship to everything and when I left it after a few years of doing it I left when I was 30 you know big part of me kind of felt god oof, I, I just wasted like nearly nearly a decade of my life doing something that I knew I didn't like oh why did I do that and then it's weird because I I've done so many things I've done loads of jobs in my life and you know even training as a as an actress I wasn't the the typical actress I was writing scripts throughout the time that I was an actress and I was producing films throughout the time that I was an actor I was like constantly doing stuff and I learned I learned how to edit and I learned how to put a production together I was first AD like I did so many aspects of the world of filmmaking that when this happened, I was, I suddenly realized, oh my God, I have all these tools that I never understood how they would serve me. Like they had no, do you know what I mean? And then suddenly 
what I do as a content creator online is basically everything. You know, you're the actor, you're the camera person, you're the first AD, you put the budget together. And the legal stuff came in because I work, you know, with companies all the time. There's a lot of contracts in place, uh, you know, so there's a lot of that. And I think with the with the activism, like with the videos about women's rights and sexism and, you know, rape culture and all the other top bigger topics that I talk about, I think that the the research that goes into those videos, I think probably my legal training helps me there because, uh, you know, it's like being a lawyer is like 80 percent of it is researching, you know, so just having that patience and 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 knowing that you need to really delve into something enough because the one thing I really didn't want anybody to do is like, you're not an expert. Why are you saying this or that? Like, you know, what are you basing what you're saying on? So that was very important to me, but uh, I haven't been an attorney for over 15 years. You know, it's not, it's not who I am, but I suppose it's a tool that I have in my toolkit. <laughs> it's a very, it's a fine toolkit. And I, I wanted to ask about your new book about you did what based on your Facebook live show, Pajama Party and Confessions and about secrets and confessions and the things that we feel shame around. In your experience, I'm always curious, why do we tell strangers our secrets, do you think? All these women wrote in and shared with you. Why do you think that was? Well, I think people, you know, when you're carrying a secret that's really causing you shame and it's heavy, it's a heavy burden actually to carry. And some of the secrets, by the way, were just really funny. So maybe it's not so much shame. It's just, God, this is really embarrassing and cringy. I don't want anybody to ever know this about me. <laughs> um, and it's not so serious, and you know, but some people... Some people have secrets that are that weigh on them. I think they really do weigh on them. Uh, and I don't know, maybe there's a sense of relief when you say it to someone. You know, it's a bit like Catholics with confessions, isn't it? You know, it's like, get it out there. I was raised Catholic. Yeah, yes, exactly. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. You know, <laughs> get it out there. And so maybe it gives you a bit of a relief. I'm not sure. But what I do know from doing confessions, and I've, I've been sharing people's confessions for over five years, like you said, first on Facebook and now in the book. So I have read thousands of confessions, honestly, from all over people from all over the world. And what I have found is that A, people have the same secrets. We, we hide the same things. It's crazy. And, I, and when we did it on, on Pajama Party, you have the feedback from other people listening to the confessions. The reaction was always, oh, my God, I thought that was just me. This has now made me feel so much better about myself. Just knowing someone else thought like that, did something similar, you know, that it's not just me. I'm normal, you know? <laughs> You're not alone. Yeah. So, okay. So now I need to know what are the things that, that, that what are the, the sort of areas that people typically are sharing secrets about? So the book is divided into sections and really I chose those sections because those were the most common kind of themes that people sent in lots of parenting confessions. So there's a whole section dedicated to parenting. And in that section, I'd say 50% probably of the confessions are more like parenting hacks, in my opinion. So lots of things that parents do to make their life <laughs> easier. A lot of them involve lying to children. So I'm sure like parenting experts will not like this book, but I'm just saying that's, that's a lot of the nature. But there's also like quite dark ones, people not quite sure how they feel about, about their choice to become a parent. Some some confessions like uh, lean towards relationship more, but they they involve an aspect of parenting. So like things that they haven't told their partner, 
but in relation to children, even people who, you know, have children and know that their partner is not the, the, the father of their children, but have carried that secret with them for many years. And a lot of women uh, wrote stories along those lines. Wow, that must be a really good example of one that you feel lighter for having shared, even even to a stranger. Yeah, and I, I always say like to people who read the book that they need to know that the way I chose the confessions, because it's like there was thousands, was I really chose confessions that I received a lot similar to that. So like, for example, if you see one confession in a book and you think, well, maybe it was just a one-off, it's not. You know, there were a lot of confessions in that area. So it represents an array of confessions, you know. So parenting is the one is the first one. And then we've got a lot of revenge stories. So people who are upset with other people and, you know, do all kinds of nasty things to get back at them. And they're kind of funny. Again, the one rule, by the way, about confessions during pajama party was always no judgment, because sometimes you read these things and you think, oh, that's horrible. But the whole point is no judgment. So a lot of very funny stories there, uh, nasty things people get up to with other people's toothbrushes, you know, mainly. Oh. <laughs> and there's also, of course, sex and relationships, which is uh, a, a big section in the book. And that can be anything from funny stories about sex goes wrong, uh, pleasuring yourself with all kinds of strange objects, fantasies. And also, again, on the more serious side, you know, uh, people talking about um, not having sex in their relationships at all not being able to orgasm in their, you know, in their sex or quite a lot of people talking about, you know, not being attracted to their partner, but not being able to say it and being in that type of situation. Yeah. And then the last part of the book is the bodily fluids parts of the book. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> no, it's very funny. It's very funny. And you write thinking about relationships and the struggle and perhaps not being attracted to partners. You write in your book, Effed at 40, about monogamy and how we are funneled into an expectation that our romantic relationships will be with one person forever, which just seems to go against, I know, a lot of the, the science. And I know that you personally have had to have that conversation. What are your thoughts on, on monogamy now? And how does that work for you? I mean, to be honest, how it works is this is a fluid thing that it really does change. And we've also had a worldwide pandemic that has changed, I think, for a lot of people, you know, uh, their the dynamic of their relationship and also the dynamic if their relationship is, for example, monogamous, you know, and so that's like a technicality, right? But the, the way I feel about monogamy hasn't changed since I wrote the book. I still think that, uh, but that's not, it's not just monogamy. We are brought up to, you know, to believe in certain ideas that are the ideas that are in our society. You know, those are the norms according to the society that we live in. And I never question them. And I think most people probably don't question them. I don't think people question them. You know, for me, it was quite clear. I would one day get married and have a lovely wedding with a white dress. And I, you know, and, and what I want to have is a nice home and a family. And, and I still want all those things, but I never, ever even just considered that there are other options. Do you know what I mean? And that was, that's more the place that I, that I came from. The thing that I wanted to really explore. Are there any other options? And once I started looking into them, I thought, oh God, there are. And people are doing it. And and people are not just doing it, but <laughs> doing other, you know, they're exploring other options. And what 
blew me away is again, I spoke about this publicly, honestly, not because I want anyone to know my private business with my husband, but only because I knew that it was taboo. And I knew that there were people out there who, like me, had either had curiosities, were interested, or maybe were even doing it, but were ashamed, hiding it. And I was right, because as soon as I started talking about it, you know, I received the same feedback like I did all those years ago about motherhood. You know, oh, my God. Thank you so much. My husband and I have been happily married for 20 years and we've been regularly going to swinger parties. It's fantastic. We love it. Like we could be closer. None of our friends know. Oh my God, they wouldn't be our friends. And then I heard other people say, we told our friends they're not our friends anymore. Like crazy stories, you know, all kinds of stories. And then I also had the other side of it, which I loved as well. with people saying, yeah, don't see this as a big deal at all. Like no confession here, but like, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm still writing in because I, I know that it's still important. You know, I know that it needs to be said. I also think it's a generational thing. I'm on TikTok now, which is just <laughs> very down with the kids. I mean, it's just, I'm so not, by the way, I can't, it just does my head in, but I see the the sort of the 20 year olds and the late teens talking about relationships and their language and their idea, their framework is so different to our framework. Like I was born in 1975, so I'm, I'll, I'll be 46 next month. I never had that language at their age. I never saw the possibilities that they see. So I think it's definitely a generational thing as well. Yeah, it, it was so vivid when you write about it in the book, just having that initial conversation in bed with your husband that just seems was your stomach in your in your mouth at that stage? I mean, just having that conversation, I think that was really helpful for you to write about that, to show people this is how you can even begin to suggest something like this in a relationship. So it's funny because that was actually the number one question I got asked from women was how do I start the conversation? Men want to know other things, obviously. And uh, the press always wanted to know other things. But I knew that that was what women were interested in. Because actually, I think what they were saying, more so than anything, was how do you get so honest with your partner that you can actually tell your partner, hey, maybe we should sleep with other people. <laughs> you know, like, how do you even get to the level that you can say that? I think it's so personal. Like, I think you, you can't take one thing that works for one couple and apply it because I don't know other people's relationships. And I think that in another time, in another place, maybe I couldn't have said that to Mike. I don't know. But in where we were at that moment in time and after the sort of the process of the midlife crisis that really, I think, brought us closer, but not through working on our relationship, but rather through me working on myself, because through those, you know, realizing how I lost myself throughout motherhood and the bucket list that I did, it really was a journey to rediscover who I was. And I became so much happier in that process because I found myself and I, you know, I took up new hobbies and it sounds so stupid, you know, but I felt I was in a great place. And as a result, we were in a great place, you know? It had a really great impact on our relationship. And I think that when I brought up the subject, I knew in my hearts and hearts that it really wasn't about him. It was about me. It was about something, another thing that I wanted to explore within me as all the things that I was doing already. And I think he knew that. He knew that. I think that if he had thought maybe that this was, that if we were not like, you know how sometimes people think I'll have another baby and it'll fix our relationship. I think that if we were doing that, then maybe the conversation wouldn't have gone down so well. I don't know. 
but also it it certainly was not one conversation and i think it needs to be an ongoing conversation and i think there needs to be constant checks you know it has to be an open dialogue and i think what's what's great about it actually there's there's a lot of books by the way for anybody who's really interested in that that they can go and have a look but what's interesting about it is that you can really define it for yourselves it doesn't have to be what other people are doing you know you can just figure it out Thank you so much for sharing. I think that's hugely valuable for people to to just be reminded it's not just one conversation. And with all the difficult conversations we have to have in life, it's usually not just one difficult conversation. It's doing it again and again and again. You also write, I so appreciated your description of of the challenges of, of once you have had this conversation with your husband of of sort of being out there in the world, of of how to be sexual in your 40s when the virginal routine no longer works. Because, I mean, tell us about the challenges here and what works instead. Oh, God, nothing. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, but it's true because you have to let go, I think, of a lot of things that you that were your tools for so many years. And I think, uh, you know, I, I have so much to say about like how unkind I think our, you know, our society is towards women. Uh, and especially women over a certain age. There's a real unkindness. You're, you know sort of like but then on the other hand I have felt very liberated actually because you know I turned 40 and I sort of really shed the sort of oh you know having to play any part for anyone's sake anymore like I'm not interested in that anymore not one bit and uh, I think that's why by the way people think women go crazy after 40 when in fact I think we've always been a bit crazy we just hit it <laughs> we just hit it in our 20s yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking, no, no, actually, that was that was the show. This is this is the real me. Like this is us. And and I think it's hard. Uh, you know, I, I know a lot of my friends. I I do have friends who are single or divorced, and they're dating, and they do tell me about that struggle of the sort of if you're an in, independent and you're you know you're sure of yourself and you're confident. Some men, not all men, but some men find that quite intimidating. There's something maybe that they find attractive in a younger woman that's a bit more, like you said, virgin. (laughs) As that sort of like, you know, I don't know that we all sort of did probably when we were younger. But again, I feel like with, for example, with my relationship with Mike, I, I really did hit the jackpot with him. I really did. He is so not threatened by anything that I say or that I do. He's secure within himself and he's really, really supportive. And, you know, I, I, I really do. I, I, I think I, a lot of the times I think to myself, I probably did something right, you know, because I was married before and that didn't work out. And uh, just to, to, for it to work out, touch wood, so wonderfully as it did second time around, I'm thinking, okay, I must have done something right. <laughs> you know, Well done, Mike. Yeah. Well done, you. Thank you. Yeah, you, you chose well, clearly. <laughs> and I always like to sort of ask guests how, how you cope now when you experience loss or disappointment, having learnt what you have about being sad. I think that it's still a work in progress. I so appreciate what you do because I think you're right I think sadness is a really really is for me probably the trickiest really um emotion to access you know I, I do I've got a new show and it's come uh, at the moment based on off the book and in the show I talk there's a whole section about anger uh because I feel like I've, I feel that there's also 
accessing anger can be a bit tricky. And actually, you know, I actually talk about rage. So it's not even anger. It's like a step above <laughs> anger, you know. So I feel like I'm I'm improving, but the sadness is the bit that I still need to. Yeah, I'm. I, it's a work in progress, like for me. You know, I'm not. I'm not there. I'm enjoying your book. I'm reading it. And oh, I, thank you so I much. Like I, lo- I love the the beginning. It's like if you pick this up, this is for you. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> so I see you. I hear. I you. need this book. How to be sad? <laughs> I mean, honestly. <laughs> It's great. Maybe I prescribe some sort of emotional arousal via music or films to just sort of tip you over the edge, maybe. I wonder with, and and you were, and having read about, you know, growing up and in your early 20s, I wonder, I always end by asking guests what advice you'd give your 21-year-old self about how to be sad well. So thinking back to 21-year-old Tova, what was going on and and what, what would you tell her now? Yeah, I mean, it's such a cliche, but I really would tell myself and anyone is, God, life's too short. Just go, 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 whatever. You know, I, life's too short. Just go. This is the thing. I, <laughs> so many people ask me, Tova, like, how do you do it? Like, how do you dare? How you, and I say to them, it's not confidence. Honestly, I just think about when I die. <laughs> <laughs> it's so morbid. You are in touch with your sad side. But that is what I think about. I'm like, okay. If I was dead now, would this matter? No. Oh, good one. That's right? interesting. So we need a t-shirt with Will Smith quote on the front. And we'll put that on the back and we'll all get these t-shirts and it'll be great. So I go like, oh, should I do this one? Oh, I'm not sure. Like, okay. Imagine now that you're dead. Does this matter? <laughs> and if it doesn't, you don't do it? No, if it doesn't matter, then I don't ponder on it so much. Like, who cares? It's not a big thing, you know? Like, people will say to me, and it could be stupid things, like, not stupid, but like small things. They'll go, How are you so brave to wear a bikini, you know, like to the pool or to the beach? And I'm like, Well, let's pretend I'm dead now. Like, is the fact that I wore a bikini and looked, you know, and had cellulite, whatever, does that matter? Like, will anybody remember that? Is that going to be what people are going to talk about? I'm like, no. <laughs> That is my, that's how I live my okay. life. So don't ponder and go. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Thank you so much. A real pleasure to speak to you today. Thank you so much, Tova Lee. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please do rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. It really helps other people find us and helps us to be able to make more podcasts. The book How To Be Sad is out now wherever you get your book delights. And I hope you are doing okay today.